Welcome to Season 6, Episode 10 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts. I want to take a quick moment to give a shout out to everyone who has read my debut novel, According to Plan. Thank you so much for the emails, Facebook messages, and heartfelt reviews on Amazon. It really means a lot. The response has been more than I could have hoped for. If you are interested in reading a quirky contemporary love story with all the deep feels, go to KimberKessler.com. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-K-E-S-S-L-E-R.com. From there, you can click to get the book. And hey, why not sign up for my list while you're there? I'd love to share more stories with you. So this week, I'm looking at Brooklyn in order to study how to craft great beginnings. This 2009 novel by Colm Tobin was adapted to the 2015 film of the same name directed by Jim Crowley from the screenplay by Nick Hornby. As always, this is an adult conversation. You may hear some adult words. Okay, so here's a quick breakdown of the story spine. The beginning hook. Ailish Lacey struggles to find proper work in Ireland, so her sister arranges for her to immigrate to America, Brooklyn, New York. But when Ailish struggles to adjust and homesickness becomes too much to bear, she must decide if she will stick it out or not. She enrolls in night classes and volunteers to serve the poor at an Irish parish dinner on Christmas, connecting both to her future and her past, which eases the burden. In the Middle Build as Ailish begins to embrace her life in America, she meets Tony Fiorello, an Italian-American, at a parish dance, and the two begin a sweet courtship, one that begins to grow more serious before Ailish is really ready. But when Ailish's sister Rose dies suddenly back in Ireland, and Ailish makes plans to travel home to visit her mother, Tony asks Ailish to marry him before she leaves. Ailish must decide whether to commit to this future now or keep her options open. She agrees to marry him. They consummate the relationship and marry at a courthouse without telling either of their families. In the ending payoff. Back in Ireland, Ailish is more popular than ever, gaining all kinds of attention and opportunities that she never had before going to America. She takes over her late sister's bookkeeping job and garners the affection of a local bachelor, Jim Farrell. She extends her stay to attend a friend's wedding, and the longer she's there, the more she becomes ensconced in Irish life. But when her spiteful ex-employer, Miss Kelly, corners her with gossip that she's learned through the Irish grapevine that Ailish is married to an Italian, Ailish must decide whether to own her choices or not. She tells her mother the truth that she's married and books a trip back to Brooklyn and Tony and the life she's committed to the next day. So I'm classifying Brooklyn as a global status sentimental genre with a love courtship as the companion. I've chosen it for several reasons. First of all, to continue my study of beginnings. Now, I feel like I've been struggling a bit this season, floundering around, trying to make meaningful contributions that others will find helpful while trying to get to the bottom of what makes a great beginning. But I worry the value is more real in my head than it has been for y'all. Two things are colliding for me in this scenario. One, I am obsessed with completeness and understanding and communicating things from top to bottom. I want to know and share everything. And two, what makes a great beginning is not a single moment or even a single principle. It's a sequence of rich layers. So it's not been easy to wrap my head around all the things that are contributing to a great beginning, let alone coherently pass along those insights. So today, I am going to try to narrow my focus to one specific aspect of beginnings that I feel that Brooklyn does exceptionally well, and that is establishing life values through setting and also circumstances that are related to the setting. Let's begin with the four dimensions of setting that Sean has mentioned previously, period, duration, location, and levels of conflict. In Brooklyn, these dimensions are introduced in a variety of ways. Based on clothing, hairstyles, customs, and technology, the period appears to be mid-20th century. The unique stone streets, Catholic mass, shops, and most notably the accents tell us we're in small town in Ireland. 
We can't discern duration just from the opening, but based on the character action and dialogue, we learn the level of conflict is interpersonal and intrapersonal. As the beginning hook continues to develop, we see larger conflict in the state of affairs for Irish people, both in Ireland and in America. Most notably, the lack of opportunities for Ailish, which prompts her move to America in the first place, and also the hundreds of Irish men who built the tunnels and the bridges and now live on next to nothing. But after 50 years in America, they have no more connections with anyone back in Ireland. Now, any story would need to introduce these elements in its opening scenes and sequences, but Brooklyn makes distinct use of it because of the type of story that it is, a milieu story. This word is often referred to in storytelling from Orson Scott Card's MICE quotient, which stands for milieu, idea, character, and event. Now, while every story is going to contain all four elements, Card posits that one will be the primary driver of a story. Okay, so according to Wikipedia, milieu is the social environment and social context. The socio-cultural context refers to the immediate physical and social settings in which people live or in which something happens or develops. It includes the culture that the individual was educated in or lives in and the people and institutions with which they interact. So a milieu story is a story of place. A character leaves one environment and enters another where they struggle to fit in and often want to leave. The clash of cultures and social norms is a strong aspect of this kind of story. And in something like Gulliver's Travels or Alice in Wonderland or even the Chronicles of Narnia, this is fairly obvious and exaggerated. But it is still highly relevant in a quieter or less fantastical story. In Brooklyn, we see this in the stark contrast between Irish culture and American culture, and even Irish-American and Italian-American culture. Now, I have been receiving an education about Irish culture from a client of mine who is from Ireland originally and is writing a novel that takes place in Ireland. She and I are studying the novel and screenplay of Brooklyn as a masterwork. Now, I had seen the film before, but it was fun to read the novel and watch the film anew with my newfound inklings of understanding. So here are some elements of Irish life and culture that have come up in our conversations. One is that everyone knows everyone and talks about everyone. Watching people, checking up on people, reporting on the goings-ons, this is all par for the course. Uh, A common phrase that my client uses is that the whole island is like one big village. So a couple of fun examples of Irish life and culture in action in Brooklyn are Miss Kelly, Ailish's boss. Her blatant favoritism of some customers and the scolding of others, this entire hierarchy of a small town comes through right in the opening scenes. And also, Miss Kelly's comment on Alicia's sister, Rose. Your poor sister. My sister. Oh, mothers are always being left behind in this country. But Rose, that's the end for her now, isn't it? She'll be looking after your mother for the rest of her life. Another example of this, on the boat, Georgina, Ailish's roommate, tells Ailish that sometimes it's nice to talk to someone who doesn't know your auntie. And this is a setup for the ending when news of Ailish's marriage travels back to Miss Kelly. This plays out a little different in the film than in the book, but it's still very similar and the spirit of it is the same. I personally like the film version better of that particular moment. Even though everyone is talking to one another, people don't talk about their feelings. And the way my client says, at least not the way Americans do. And families from this time period, my client's novel takes place in the mid-1960s, were not often openly affectionate. One really heartfelt, amazing example in the film is when Rose is helping Ailish pack. Is that really everything you want? Oh, Ailish. I should have looked after you better. You've bought most of the clothes in this case. It's one of the reasons I'm gone, because I can't find my own. If it was just that, I'd spend every penny I had on you. Gladly. But I can't buy you a future. I can't buy you the kind of life you need. I know. But you'll come see me there one day. Yes. And you'll look after yourself. You don't have to worry about me. And I'll come home to visit, won't I? Because I couldn't bear it if... I haven't packed your shoes yet. 
They'll take up a bit of room. This is immediately followed by Ailish on the boat, with her mother and Rose standing with the crowd to see them off. Ailish's mother can't stand to watch her go and has to turn around and leave. Rose and Ailish blow each other a kiss before Rose turns to go after their mother. Not a dry eye in the house, I'm telling you. Now, once Ailish is in America, we experience the new world through her eyes. Everything is so different, and even though people are everywhere, she feels very much alone. But luckily for Ailish, she has present and adequate mentors in Father Flood, Mrs. Keogh, and her supervisor at work. This helps her to fight through her homesickness, settle in a bit more in her new life in America, which brings us to the middle build where she'll meet Tony. Now, everything in this beginning hook contributes to establishing the life values at stake. Ailish cannot get what she needs in Ireland, and therefore going to America is her best chance at securing a bright future. We are in a status story. Now, because we are story nerds, we know that a status story is about seeking to rise in social standing and gain success, but that the means will challenge the protagonist and force them to look inward at their moral code. What are they willing to do to obtain their original definition of success? Will they cross their moral lines or will they change their definitions? What I love about thinking through all of this is that whichever way you come to know your genre, whether it be where the story begins or where it ends, you can find your way to the other side. When you know what your story is about, you can find the core event. And when you know that, you can suss out what the beginning of, in this case, a status story needs to be in order to pave the way for that satisfying ending. Now, the only other thing I want to mention today is that while the film opens on the morning that Ailish tells Miss Kelly that she's away to America, the novel opens a bit further back on the day that Ailish gets her job with Miss Kelly, which hilariously enough, Ailish doesn't even ask for. Miss Kelly just calls for her one day and decides that she will begin working on Sundays. Ailish decides it's not worth arguing about. She could use the work anyway, so she goes along with it. This is another great setup for the final confrontation with Miss Kelly at the end. And another reason that I love that moment in the film version so very much, where Ailish basically tells Miss Kelly where to shove it. So those are just a few things about the setting and how it's established in Brooklyn. Now I'm really excited to hear from Valerie all about forces of antagonism. What do you got for us, Valerie? Well, there are so many, so many things to love about this story. Yes, the acting is wonderful, but the storytelling, which is what we're concerned with here on the podcast, is rock solid. So even if this isn't your kind of story, I strongly recommend you take the time to study it because there are even more lessons to be learned with this story than we could ever hope to cover in just one episode on it. I was talking to a writer the other day about crisis questions, and I explained that the choice the protagonist is faced with must constitute a dilemma. That is, it's a choice between two things of equal value. It can't be an easy choice, and there must be consequences to the decision that's made. And this is what helps escalate the stakes of the story. Since these questions happen at every unit of story, they're going to vary in the degree of intensity. A beat level crisis isn't, you know, obviously going to be as big as an act level crisis or have as much impact on the story. Brooklyn offers up an excellent example of an act level crisis. Ailish must choose between returning to her husband and new life in Brooklyn or staying in Ireland and marrying Jim. Both are good men. Both clearly love her. All indications are that she'll have a good life no matter which option she chooses. So if she were to decide to divorce Tony and marry Jim, her life would be just as good. Because the choices are so equally balanced, it's hard to know which way she's going to go with it. And that means the narrative drive is really strong here. Nearly half the film is fueled by this one question. And it's, it's so subtle and it's so brilliant. Because I was really wondering, is she going to stay? Is she going to go? What's she going to do? Now, ultimately, she chooses to return to America because she has a degree of autonomy there. If she were to stay in Ireland, she'd be at the mercy of societal expectations for the rest of her life. Now, this brings me to the topic of forces of antagonism, which, as Kim said, is what I'm studying this season. If you recall, antagonists can be external or internal or societal. 
I'd been hunting for an example of a societal villain, and I think I found one which we'll study next week, but Brooklyn is also a fantastic example, as is Brokeback Mountain. My hypothesis when it comes to society as a force of antagonism is that various characters in a story represent different societal beliefs. Therefore, the societal antagonist is expressing itself through certain characters. Let me give you some examples. In the beginning hook, we see Ailish in our hometown in County Wexford. Irish society dictates certain things and has a certain perspective about who she is and what she's worth. It's conspiring to keep her in that position. She's not able to secure full-time work, even though she's intelligent and hardworking. In the part-time job that she does have, her boss, Miss Kelly, which we later find out is nicknamed Nettles Kelly, is domineering and she's just downright mean. At the dance where young people go to find future spouses because getting married is an expectation that society has, Ailish is ignored. So Nettles Kelly, the boys at the dance, and the offstage employers of County Wexford are the channels through which the societal antagonist operates. Ailish's sister, Rose, wants a better life for her, and so arranges for her to go to America. Ailish hasn't escaped the Irish antagonist, though, because for the remainder of the beginning hook, she is painfully homesick. Saoirse Ronan has done such a great job epitomizing and embodying this homesick, shy girl. It's fantastic. Now, American society, though, is also an antagonist because... It's a foreign world to her. When she gets there first, she doesn't know how to behave or what to do. And through characters like her colleague at the department store and the waiter at the diner where she has her supper, and you know the general lifestyle of New York, the busyness, the, all the people around her, through these characters, America is, for lack of a better word, attacking Ailish. Now, I mean, obviously this isn't a full-on assault or anything like that, but it is a force of antagonism that's pushing against the protagonist. Even Tony, her beloved Tony, represents an aspect of the societal antagonist. When he offhandedly mentions that he doesn't want their children to be Yankees fans, he's giving voice to society's expectations of young women like Ailish. That is, that they all want to and must get married and have children. Tony remarks that Ailish is amenable, and that's absolutely true. It's her primary characteristic. As a protagonist, she's an underdog. She has little to no power in Ireland or when she first arrives in America. She goes along with everything everyone wants for her until the midpoint when she tells Tony not to talk about their children. It's just too much too soon for her. Now, it's a small victory and short-lived, but hey, it's a start. A few minutes later, he convinces her to marry him, and her hesitation suggests that she's not quite ready for it, but she does do it anyway. When Ailish returns to Ireland after her sister's death, the societal antagonist goes into overdrive. It wants her to stay and do what's expected of her. It expresses itself through her mother, Mary, who tells her to delay her return to America and who encourages the other antagonists in Ireland in the ending payoff, her best friend, Nancy, who sets her up on a blind date, Jim, who falls in love with her and offers her a viable option for staying in Ireland, the boss at Davis's mill, who offers her Rose's old job, and even the old woman at church who congratulates her on the happy union with Jim. Then there's Nettles Kelly. Nettles Kelly. I just love that character. She's one of the few overt external antagonists in the film. And of course, she does what villains do, right? She attacks on the external plane through blackmail. She's found out that Ailish is married. So this is the all is lost moment, which naturally is followed by an epiphany. If Nettles Kelly tells the town that Ailish is married, it's game over, right? She's humiliated. The epiphany is when Ailish realizes that she needs to be less amenable. She needs to speak up and confront the antagonist. The most interesting part of the scene between Ailish and Miss Kelly is when Ailish asks what Miss Kelly plans to do with the information. The truth is, she doesn't know. The others in the town don't know why they're doing what they're doing either. Because remember, 
all of those characters, Miss Kelly and the others, they're all mouthpieces for a bigger, more powerful antagonist, namely society. It's at this point when Ailish makes her ending payoff climactic decision. She is no longer amenable. She books passage back to America for the following day. She comes clean with her mother, which pretty much puts an end to that relationship. And she comes clean with Jim. So by the end of the story, Ailish has claimed victory over the antagonist by choosing the adventure of a new life in America. Now, there's a whole character study to be done here with Ailish and the rest of the cast. But I mean, if I did that here, this episode would go on for two hours. So Leslie and I have decided to do that as one of our episode topics on uh, Up, the Unpodcast that we're starting. And if you're interested in hearing that, you can sign up through my inner circle or through Leslie's captain's blog. Thank you, Valerie. That was so fantastic. I love it. Okay, Anne, now what sort of special surprises do you have for us today? I don't know how special or surprising they are. As Valerie said, there are so many good things to say about this story that I, too, struggled a bit with where to start. But I finally decided that I would return to a story principle that I haven't touched on in a while, which is to say scene types. Now, as a reminder, scene type operates on a level below story principles like genre and the other editor's six core questions. Most of the scene types I've discovered so far are transferable to almost any genre. And that's because scene type is a choice the writer makes based on how many characters are present, in what kind of surroundings, doing what. That determines the scene type. When you strip a scene down with those questions, and you kind of strip out the meaning for the moment and just look at that skeletal structure, you'll find that there's only a finite, a large but finite number of combinations available. You can have solo, two-character, small group, large group, or crowd scenes. You can have them set indoors or outdoors. You can have them in motion or static. You can have them talking, working, or playing. You can have them interacting in various ways with strangers, friends, lovers, families, enemies, or the environment. So it's not surprising that when you start watching for scene types, the book or movie you're analyzing can start to seem unoriginal or bare. It's a risk that you take because you've seen them all before. Now, what I want to look at today is the tricks for innovating on scene types, since there is a limited array of scene types to choose from. This movie does all of them very well, but here are four ideas that I have for how to innovate on a scene type. One, bring in unexpected elements to the scene type that you've seen before. Two, only reuse a scene type over again in your story in a way that escalates tension and drives the character to choice points. Three, don't repeat the same scene type too many times in a row in your story. And four, reuse a scene type to subtly mirror or echo a theme or idea at key points in your story, like the in and out, the beginning and end. Brooklyn does all of these things really well. Now, I was especially struck by the film's use of the dinner scene or the meal scene, and I'll come to that in a moment. But as I went through the film a second time, I noticed a wonderful and clearly intentional mirroring of scene types that served the story really well. There's a complete listing in the show notes, but here I'm going to highlight a handful of really notable repeated scene types and talk a little bit about how this film uses them consciously to build Ailish's clear status sentimental arc. The first one, and we haven't seen this one before on the podcast, I haven't looked at it before, is a religious service, in this case, Catholic Mass. This scene type can be used to show a lot about the relationship between characters and their everyday culture, as well as at key life moments, and that's important. In the opening scene, we see Ailish and her boss, Miss Kelly, and a friend, uh, her co-worker, attending Latin Mass on a dark and cold Sunday morning. Ailish is bored and sleepy. Miss Kelly gives her a side eye about that. And we learn a lot about the milieu through this very brief scene. Now, at the midpoint, just after the midpoint, we see Rose's funeral. Just a brief moment where her mother is sitting in church alone. It's another dark day. And Remember, funerals and weddings and births are three really key moments in life that transcend all cultural boundaries, right? Just before the global crisis, then we get a wedding scene in a church. This is Ailish's friend, Nancy. The church here is bright and full of light. It's a beautiful summer day. You wouldn't even know it was the same place, but it's the same church, presumably. This scene uses 
also a standard love story trope where the couple who are not yet engaged, this is Ailish and Jim, who does not yet know that she is married, witness the wedding of two friends and they think about wanting to be married themselves. You've seen this before in like every romance, right? The filmmakers innovated it in this instance because we know that Ailish is already married. So instead of seeming romantic, this scene type builds up still more tension leading to the global crisis of whether she's going to honor her marriage vow and go home or stay and succumb to Irish society and marry Jim. The next scene type is the protagonist doing their job. Okay, we see this comes up several times in the movie. This scene type is used to show the character's skill or lack of skill and their relationship to the economy and the structures of power in the usually in the form of the boss or coworkers. Now, the first one of these in the movie is in the opening which we've already talked about. Ailish is working in a crowded retail workplace, the local general store in her Irish town. Customers crowd in. We see her being patient, silent and shy with them and we see that she has a horrible boss. Now, the second instance of the protagonist doing her job scene is when Ailish is new in Brooklyn. We see her at her new job in a crowded retail workplace. It repeats the same elements, right? But now instead of a small town general store, she's in a fancy Brooklyn department store. She's still silent and shy, but this is now a bigger problem for her. Her boss there, her supervisor, is much more of an ally than Miss Kelly could ever be, and gives her some advice that she can use to become more successful. And then much later near the midpoint shift, we see her using that advice successfully in her job where she is now at ease, she's natural, she converses easily with a customer, and their conversation, this is important to note, is also used to reveal a passage of time. We get that it is now spring, she has come through the winter, which is a very important thing to do in your story. The next scene type, and this one recurs the most often in this film and is, is the most transferable to almost any kind of movie, is a meal scene. There are different types of meal scenes, subsets of them, but the scene type is usually used to clarify characters by how they speak, how they eat, and how they interact with each other. It often usually demonstrates family relationships or relationships that are family-like and often brings in an outsider for contrast. So those are different kind of subsets of the meal scene. In the opening scenes, in the beginning hook, we see Ailish and her family eating at home. We see a weak but kind mother and two sisters who are close. It shows us the ordinary life that Ailish will soon be leaving behind. And it's interesting, it's remarkably similar to the pivotal dinner table scene in It's a Wonderful Life, where there the protagonist, George Bailey's future is discussed, and the family comes to terms with the fact that the protagonist is determined to leave home. Now, there's a boarding house meal scene that repeats seven times, and it's funny, it's delightful, each one of, is wonderful. But it's not just, oh, people need to eat, so let's show them eating. Each one of these boarding house meals is similar to a family meal because the young women at the boarding house are a bit like siblings under the motherly eye of Mrs. Kehoe, the boarding house owner. At first, the rest of the family, quote unquote, is much more sophisticated than the outsider, Ailish. Each unique personality around the table contributes naturally to our, the viewer's, understanding of the life and times and helps set up what's coming next in the next scene. With each of the six subsequent recurrences of the boarding house meal scene, Ailish is shown becoming more sophisticated, more at home in her new world, and more accepted by others. It's a very important use of a scene type to ratchet things up and move the story forward. Next, we have a really common meal scene type, the meal scene of discomfort. And this was a fun one. This is when Ailish goes to Tony's house for dinner. And it provides the specific particular subtype where the outsider in the family is the love interest meeting the lover's family for the first time. We have seen this scene in every romance story between lovers from two different ethnic or cultural groups. So we see different types of food than the protagonist is used to and that sort of thing. The meal is a rite of passage for the outsider, for the, the lover or the outsider. In this case, Ailish proves that she knows how to eat spaghetti, and thus she passes the family's test. 
Also in this scene type, there's usually one family member, in this case it's the kid brother, who blurts out some uncomfortable truth for comic effect or else to build tension. And here it's mostly comic effect. It's really quite a funny scene. And then there's uh, an instance of family gathering over tea. It's not strictly a meal scene, but as we approach the global crisis, Ailish goes to tea at the fancy home of her new love interest, Jim Farrell, and his parents. So she's meeting the parents again, right? It's, I think she already knew them, but she's meeting them in a new context. And it echoes the scene with Tony's family. But instead of a cultural or ethnic difference, there's a significant class difference. And this is important. Ailish would never have passed muster with these parents before having gone to America. But now she's sophisticated and well-dressed and poised, and it's different for her. Of course, the intimacy of meeting the family here ratchets up the tension, just like in the wedding scene, because we know that she's already married and nobody else knows it except Ailish. And the question of how much longer she can lie by omission is heavy in the air in this scene. Now, next we have the dance or ballroom scene. And this scene type establishes the social hierarchy. It tells us a lot about the economic background of the characters by how well they're dressed, how well they dance. It tells us a lot about the social environment by the kind of music. It tells us a lot about the period, by the costumes and so forth, and the dancing style. Early in the beginning, very early, right at the beginning, Ailish goes to the parish dance with her friend Nancy, and she there is a wallflower, uninterested in the local boys. And after all, she is leaving for America soon, so why should she be interested in the local boys? Now, in the second dance hall scene, it's in Brooklyn, but it's still at a parish church hall. It's like exactly echoes the first one. But in this case, her more glamorous friends from the boarding house help doll her up in the bathroom, and she's no longer a wallflower. She takes a quick dancing lesson from one man, and that attracts the attention of Tony, who's the first big complication of the middle build. And Tony and Ailish spend the evening dancing together, and we see Ailish coming out of her shell in a big way, and we wouldn't have seen that as clearly if the scene type didn't echo the earlier one where she was a wallflower. The third dance hall scene, so to speak, is at the wedding reception in Ireland. Ailish is now, she's a sophisticated New Yorker by comparison to what she used to be, and she's slow dancing with Jim Farrell and considering his marriage proposal. So she's gone from total wallflower to coming out of her shell to being a completely blossomed forth woman uh, with a big secret. And again, if we didn't have the repeated scene type, we wouldn't necessarily follow that thread as closely. Now, this is a scene type that isn't actually repeated in the film, but I wanted to call it out because we do see it from time to time. And it's, I call it arrival alone in a new place. The filmmakers innovated on this scene type, which we've seen in other immigration stories, mainly by letting Ailish pass through immigration without any particular hitch. There's no image of the Statue of Liberty either, which is a terribly cliched trope. There's no huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Instead, this scene doesn't signal the hardship of the newcomer to America, which I was really glad to see. Instead, it signals that that is not what this story is going to be about. Sure, she's going for success in America, but the American immigrant success story is not really what this story is going to be about. Another scene that doesn't recur, but that is really important, is at the turn from Act 1 to Act 2. This is the soup kitchen scene that uh, was mentioned before. It took me a minute to recognize it as a large party scene. Now here the guests are old and indigent Irish men who have come for a free Christmas dinner at a soup kitchen rather than the wealthy Singapore elites that we saw in Crazy Rich Asians, but it has exactly the same dynamic, allowing two characters to talk about other people in the room. Here, Father Flood delivers just this whole load of exposition, a history lesson about the Irish in America, and yet because of the scene type, it feels perfectly natural and it is also incredibly moving. Now, another scene type that recurs several times is, and I'll just point this out, it's a two-person conversation that's a subtype that I call boss and employee, and it happens three or four times in the story. And when you watch for it, you'll see her relationship with the boss change from this shy, self-effacing girl with a mean, nasty boss right to someone who is no longer, as she says, amenable, but who knows her own mind and is being co actively courted by a boss who really, really wants her to stay working uh, for him in Ireland. 
And that scene type, the conversation between boss and employee, a two-person conversation, is used to turn the plot in two major places, forcing Ailish to face her choices. I have a ton more scenes. They're all going to be listed in the, in the show notes, and we don't have time to go over them here. But the lesson from Brooklyn is to choose your scene types consciously. Never have a meal scene just because people would be eating at this point in this story. Use the tensions inherent in people dining together to move the protagonist towards a choice or to bring out conflict, ideally both. Never show people riding in a car or a carriage or a spaceship merely because they need to get from point A to point B. Close your characters in a moving vehicle to raise tension and deliver bad news that someone can't get out of hearing. By the way, the transit scene in this story is done mostly on board the ship in two instances. If you can get two people out of a room and into the street or out into nature to have that conversation they need to have, then do it. Use motion to show the relative fitness of characters. Use the landscape or the cityscape they pass through to build your world and establish your time frame and culture. Throw two or more unlikely characters together to bring out new information the way this film did when it put Ailish in a room with her mentor, Father Flood, and a hundred indigent Irish immigrant men. If you're stuck in a scene, try changing the scene type and see if something new comes out. Now, I also took a close look at scene types in our episodes on passengers and the girl on the train, and there's also a Fundamental Fridays post detailing a few of the most common ones, and we'll link to those in the show notes. Thank you, Anne. I love it when you talk about scene types. It's so much fun, and it just gives me so many great ideas. Thank you. Okay, next up is Leslie to talk to us more about point of view and narrative device. And Leslie, I know you read the novel on this one with me, and so I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about that. Yes. So, of course, I'm focusing on point of view and narrative device this season ad nauseum, perhaps. But these topics, concepts, answer the question, how do I deliver my story to the reader? So it is very important. I would say it's the second most important question after you answer what's the genre. Point of view tells you whether your story is first person or third person limited or omniscient, etc., and whether it's written in the past or present tense. But the narrative device or situation specifies who is conveying the story, to whom, when, from where, and in what form and why. Now, I explore these topics in my bite-sized episode on choosing your point of view, and I'll have links to that and my point of view articles in the show notes. I've mentioned how my study of point of view and narrative device confirms the importance of these decisions and how they create useful constraints to support the telling of your story. But the further I explore, the more I realize there is no single best narrative device and point of view choice for a particular story, but some are much better and stronger than others. You know, discovering patterns in masterworks help us identify these better choices so we can write better stories. I focus primarily on the novel, and the film is really close, but I spent more time with the novel, and the filmmakers did choose a slightly different point of view and narrative device. I would argue it's still Ailish's point of view, mostly, but I identify it as what Friedman calls dramatic mode, which isn't surprising since it's a film. We see what Ailish does and says, but we don't have access to her internal experience except through outward expression. I begin my inquiry into point of view and narrative device by looking at the narrative problem presented by the premise. So what's the premise here? We have a young Irish woman in the early 1950s seeking opportunity in Brooklyn, which is a very different world from where she grew up, and in a place where she has no family. The global genre, of course, is status, but the plot here is surely labyrinth, which may be a feature of these milieu stories. 
The narrative problem, I would say, presented by this premise is the focus on the milieu or the environment. These stories rely on blank characters that are representative of the place and time and that readers can easily see themselves in. The protagonist and other point of view characters, when used, observe and reflect on the mundane existence of the world for the reader. Now, just because we're exploring the environment doesn't mean readers will forgive a meandering story. I think the quiet nature of a story like this means you have to be all the more disciplined in terms of the structure and your technical choices, because it's so easy to get off track and follow the details that are interesting to you, but might not be important for the story. The writer can fall in love with the literal action and details, that is, what's happening on the surface, and miss what needs to happen underneath. Those details need to serve the bigger message of the story. The environment focus, plus a subtle global internal genre like status, means this story is quiet, a slice of life. And so in terms of point of view and narrative device, we need a high resolution lens. Otherwise, we would miss the meaning of what's happening. These are the types of stories that Colm Tobin writes. Now, if you want to write a story like this, I also recommend The Master. And incidentally, you might also look at The Ambassadors and other books by Henry James. So that's the narrative problem presented by the premise, What's the Point of View? Which point of view choice makes sense given the challenge of the premise and that will give us the high resolution lens we need to reveal the meaning of the story? Well, it's selective omniscience. This narration comes directly from the mind of the point of view character. It's similar to first person point of view, but without that character's self-conscious telling to achieve a certain purpose. It's as if we're spying on the character's thoughts and feelings and emotions and their entire experience. Now, this point of view was employed in Waters of Versailles, which was my third story pick for this season. And if you compare the two stories and actually read the text, it demonstrates the range of tone that this point of view choice allows. It's dependent on the character and how deeply into the character's mind and experience the writer chooses to go. Now, with this point of view, we have access to the character's thoughts, emotions, sensations, but we're locked into their perspective. And this is one clue that shows us that the film is working with some other narrative device. We're shown scenes when Ailish isn't present, so we know that it's not just her point of view from her mind. Now, this point of view, selective omniscient, allows us to see clearly the difference between what a character thinks and feels and what they say and do. We learn how they act on their conclusions without commentary that's meant for an audience, which would be the case with an editorial or neutral omniscient narrator. So this is really useful in a milieu story because it dramatizes the unseen aspects of the setting and culture that are operating within the characters. So that's the point of view. What's the narrative device? The narrative device or situation tells us, again, who is speaking, writing, or thinking, for whom, when, from what vantage point, and why. With selective omniscience, the narrative device is the mind of the point of view character. So in the Waters of Versailles episode, I mentioned that this point of view is a covert narration, which means that the narrating entity isn't revealed to the reader. But I would modify that to say that the narrating entity doesn't address or speak directly to the reader or to their audience, but the form of narration is revealed through the details. 
So who is speaking? This is the mind of Ailish, which also tells us where the narration is coming from because she's the protagonist at the center of the story, as opposed to a character who's on the periphery or someone who's completely outside the story. When is this narration happening? Well, the novel is written in past tense, but it actually has the feel and immediacy of the present. The text includes references to perspective about the events, and this suggests that the events are in the recent past. In the novel, during quiet moments, Ailish considers the events that have happened, and that's really what the narrative feels like. It's a replay of the events that help her make sense of her experience and make decisions. Why is the narrating entity telling the story? Again, here the narrative feels like a mind engaged in making sense of something so that they can make a decision. As status stories are all about moments of crisis and decision. Of course, all stories include moments of crisis and decision, but that's not necessarily what they are about. Status stories zero in on the question, what are we willing to sacrifice for success? So what's the controlling idea here? In other words, what's the lesson that the point of view character might take from reviewing the events of the story in this way? This is off the top of my head, but I would say success results when we honor our moral code, realizing we can never know if we've made the right decision. How well does this work in this story? The film, with its different narrative device and point of view, shows us that this story can be told and told well from more than one perspective. I enjoyed both forms, but I have to say I missed Ailish's uncensored commentary in the film. That, along with the extra events and the framing of the story, provide context that help the reader navigate the milieu. So while the film does a great job with the visual and auditory input that we don't get from the novel, the experience isn't quite as rich. So if you enjoy the film, I encourage you to luxuriate in the novel. But of course, keep your tissues handy. Now, I could list lots of examples of details that Tobin includes dictated by his point of view and narrative device choices that make this story so wonderful. But one category of details that we really need in a status story and that is well handled here are the things the characters say and do that indicates where they are or where they believe they are in the social hierarchy relative to others. Ailish's observations deliver these details in a way that doesn't feel like exposition. The characters don't realize what they expose about themselves and about who they are that we can see clearly if we're paying attention. This, I think, is how we don't notice that the characters are types or representatives rather than fully developed characters. Awesome. Thank you, Leslie. Fantastic, as always. Now, we like to round out our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. What have we learned this week? Let's first hear from Valerie. Well, what I find really interesting about all this and what we need to remember as writers is that society as an antagonist works through the characters. So when we're designing our cast, we need to think about which aspects of society are pushing against the protagonist and which characters will represent each of those aspects. Well, my takeaway this week is that I think writers should dare to tear into a movie or book masterwork that you really enjoy, right, and identify some of the scene types, even if this means seeing the gears underneath the smooth surface. It sometimes can a little bit tend to ruin a story for you. Then add a scene type column to your spreadsheet for any work you're editing and track your own scene types. If you see too many of the same scene type, try rewriting some of them in a different setting or with a different number of characters, possibly doing different things. Change it up, not just for the sake of changing it up, but with a conscious intention to use scene types to build tension and complicate your story. 
My main takeaway is one that we've been saying a lot lately, and it's the importance of reviewing masterworks. And here I'm talking about for point of view and narrative device choice. And that's, yes, that is in addition to the masterworks for your global genre. Now, I encourage you to find one or more of these point of view and narrative device masterworks. Of course, that means reading deeply and widely inside and outside your genre. In particular, what I want you to look for is the way that the global choices are expressed at the micro level, because that will help you with those micro decisions in your story. My takeaway today is twofold. First, setting is a powerful way to establish life values at stake for your story. And strangely enough, character action and dialogue are a great way to establish a setting. And secondly, when leveling up your craft, it's okay to slow down and focus on one thing at a time. This storytelling thing is a lifelong adventure. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Jeannie on Twitter. Her question is, the hero's journey is predicated on the hero coming out of the ordeal successful, hence the reward and ultimate boon. But in modern stories, that rarely seems to be the case. Could the reward be switched for the all is lost in those cases? Or are these two distinct moments? I'd love to hear your experienced editor's opinion on this. Love the podcast. It's always full of valuable insights. Thank you so much, Jeannie. And Anne is going to be answering this question for us today. Hi, Jean. Thank you for an interesting question. I think what Jean is touching on here feels like a fundamental difference between external genre stories, notably the action genre, which is the heroic journey in its most archetypal form, and stories that have a stronger internal genre, like the one we looked at today, and as most modern stories tend to have, whether that internal genre is global or secondary. The always lost moment in any story is when the protagonist is forced to change or die, now, death isn't always literal. It could be accept reality or fail, sacrifice something or be damned. The reward in a modern story with a strong internal genre arises from that inner shift at the all is lost moment. So, for instance, in today's story, Ailish is driven by her own conflicting desires and the needs and wants of others to a point near damnation. She's pretty close to it, where she's keeping her marriage a secret and encouraging the attentions of another man. We could say that her all-is-lost moment is when Miss Kelly, the nasty shopkeeper, threatens to reveal her secret. And at that point, she digs deep and finds her integrity and her strength and declares her new married name. The boon or reward or gift here is bittersweet because it's an internal genre story. It's a sadder woman but wiser who returns to Brooklyn with her integrity restored and her marriage intact, but she has broken Jim's heart, left her mother alone, and she has to live with that. Something is always lost or sacrificed in the gaining of the reward. It's just that in more modern internal genre stories, the reward itself is internal to the protagonist. I hope this helps. Thank you, Jean, for a thoughtful question. Fantastic. Thank you, Anne. Now, if you have a question about crafting beginnings or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you so much, Anne, Leslie, and Valerie, for your excellent editorial insights into Brooklyn. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to craft great beginnings for your own stories. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes as well. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And join us next time as Valerie tackles the 1993 comedy Mrs. Doubtfire in her quest to suss out the forces of antagonism. Why not give it a look and probably a relook during the week and follow along with us? Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. So, a milieu, milieu, one more time, here we go.